0: Welcome to the BGSM podcast, a concussion special. I'm Stefan Griffin, a fifth year medical student at the University of Birmingham and a member of the BGSM editorial team. I'm thrilled to be joined today by three guests from the Rugby Football Union Sports Medicine Department, Dr. Simon Kemp, Dr. Matthew Cross and Dr. Mike England. As a quick introduction for those of you listening who haven't come across the great work that the RFU are doing, um, I'll just introduce all of our speakers today. Dr. Simon Kemp is the Chief Medical Officer at the RFU. He's worked as team physician in the past, was tournament medical director at last year's Rugby World Cup and sits on multiple World Rugby working groups. Dr Matthew Gross is a professional rugby medical research officer and has completed a PhD in the area of concussion in rugby through the University of Bath, producing high quality research that has been published in the BGSM some of which we'll talk about today. And last but not least is Dr Mike England who's the RFU's community rugby medical director and works with the RFU's Injured Players Foundation, coordinating, coordinating research to helps ensure the welfare of those who play the game. So welcome to the podcast, gentlemen. Um, so the first question I'd like to go um, into is, so we know concussion is a huge issue in contact
1: sports, such as rugby. Um, can you give us some insight into the scale of concussion in the sport? Um, so thank you very much, Stefan. Certainly within the elite game, we acknowledge there's a relatively high and rising incidence in the professional game. And the 14 15 season, concussion was our most commonly reported match injury, amounting to about 17% of all match injuries. And we had one reported concussion every two games, about 10 concussions per season per team. We anticipate that this may rise again for the 15 16 season, and Matt will talk about some of the reasons. But it's important to remember that concussion is not unique to rugby or contact sports. That can occur in a wide range of non-sporting settings, and the difficulty in accurately comparing reported rates of concussions between different sports and settings makes any comparison of relative risk very difficult.
2: Just picking up on the community game, um, yeah, the research that we've been doing across both adult and youth um, at parts of the game show that there is a lower incidence in the community game, as one would expect, as the injury risk overall is lower. You get a similar profile, with respect to the percentage of all injuries and where they occur, i.e. concussions tend to occur in the tackle most frequently. Um, Community players tend to be away from the game for longer, so on average in the adult community game they're they're, they're stood down for over three weeks on average. Um, It's interesting to see as well that the work we've been doing within schools over the last few years, that they're starting to recognise that having done that work in rugby, that actually they're starting to pick up more concussions in other sports that they play. So whereas the work we've been doing over the last couple of years in schools shows that the, the rate of concussions is about one every ten team games, um, and in, in the adult amateur game, it's about a third to a quarter of that in the professional game.
0: OK. Um, and I think it's, it's fair to say that rugby's been at the forefront of concussion um, sort of knowledge and, and research um, amongst sports, really. Um, you've touched that it, it is fairly prevalent, um, and... That the incidence has been increasing. Um, is this due to people being more likely to recognise and report it these days or um, have you got any other theories on this? Yeah so
3: I think um, statistically it's very difficult to separate out um, an increase in risk from improved reporting so what you need to do is consider the landscape, consider all the other available evidence to you and make some decisions about which one may be most likely. Um, so I think if there's an, with the increase in concussion that we've that we've seen, I think you would expect if it was an overall increase in risk in the sport, the incidence of other injuries, particularly contact injuries, to also um, increase, but they have remained stable over the same period. Um, also player height and, and weight, so you often hear people talk about the increased height and the increased size of players, um, that's remained stable over the same period as well. Um, and there's also been effectively a lowering of the diagnostic threshold. So what you would call a concussion now is probably not the same as even two or three years ago in terms of diagnosis. And then on top of that, there's an increase in awareness, so both publicly and within the game. Um, lots of education initi- ed initiatives going on throughout the community and professional game. Um, and also, it's important, I guess, to note that in the community game as well, this is not just a professional game piece. In the community game, we've seen a similar picture in terms of the rise and the stability of other injuries.
2: I'm just picking up on that. I mean, it's interesting, we held a Um, seminar for uh, schools medical officers at the end of last season and it was very apparent then in the discussions we were having with with schools doctors, schools nurses and schools physiotherapists that they're taking a very cautious approach to this now, their threshold for diagnosis when they they see the young players coming through um, is, is very low now um, certainly compared to sort of 10, 15 years ago. And that was, um, it was good to see actually that, you know, people are starting to take this issue seriously, particularly in young players um, and are applying the guidelines.
0: Okay. And, and I guess that's, that must be quite encouraging from a, an RFU point of view to see that the recognise and remove campaign, you know, has been successful in that regard. Um, so would you mind
1: touching on the RFU's general approach to the management of concussion um, across the whole game? Um, yeah, be delighted to. So I guess that the key thing here is that the RFU has responsibility for the community game, the women's game, the youth and schools game, and the professional game. And so the approach that we take is um, consistent across all those landscapes. And we look to measure, monitor the risk of concussion with injury surveillance. We look to develop and roll out education and awareness programs across those landscapes we want to ensure that we're delivering recognize and remove and recover and return across all those landscapes Um, we want to be leading in research to try to help influence um, the management and then we want to try and communicate to people uh, our approach and what the risk is so that's a a standard approach Um, we collaborate with a lot of stakeholders so we collaborate with world rugby we collaborate with our professional league with our players association um, with the NHS, with the Department of Health. So there's a lot of outward-facing collaboration because this is a, particularly at the community and age group ends of the game, a really significant public health challenge to deliver good management. Rather different at the professional end of the game when you're dealing with a much smaller group of players, but doing that well sends out the key messages to enable your public health messages to gain traction and be credible.
0: Okay. Okay. Um, You've touched upon, across the, sorry, I called it Recognise, remove, earlier, probably just a half of it, with Recognise, remove, Recover and Return, uh, which has been very prominent. It's around the posters up around rugby clubs all over all over England. Um, can you tell us a little bit about, uh, about
2: this campaign?
0: Yeah, yeah so
2: uh, in reality, we actually ran our first concussion awareness campaign in the community game back in 2007. It was done under a, a, a tagline of, um, you, you use your head, and... Um, but it was interesting, we ran that, we ran uh, little concussion awareness cards, um, we did posters which were sent to every club and school, and we did a send out to parents, a quarter of a million parents actually, um, in community clubs. We then evaluated the effect of that three years later, um, particularly in 16 to 18 year olds, which was our sort of interest group. You know, if you're, if you're getting your public health message to them, you're doing well. And what we found was about 12% of them were aware of that campaign, but their behaviours around concussion were not what we were looking for. So we looked at our campaign, how we'd run it. Um, We spoke to um, a marketing company about how you get information across to those those target groups. And we looked at the rest models of of getting public health campaigns across, particularly nudge theory, trans-theoretical model, um, and how... We could then package our message around that, so we rebuilt our campaign, and out of that grew Don't Be a Head Case, um, which we developed off the back of the um, Zurich consensus statement in 2012, and then launched it in, in the 2012-13 season in January. Um, that's been a, a, a big piece of work, as you can imagine, across the whole community game, and you, you're looking at you know, the awareness cards that, that help people understand what the, the symptoms are, the recognise element and the remove element. You know, we, we've, we've distributed in, in the region about 300,000 of those now. Um, we revamped our sort of poster campaign. Um, again, simple little things like the original ones were paper and they went on a club notice board. The new ones are corrugated cardboard and we actually send them with a bit of a kit that you can screw them to the wall of the changing room. So they're, they're in a place where the players see them. It's about putting the messaging in front of people continuously. We also produce a whole load of resources for coaches and referees to remind them of their behaviours. So the little whistle lanyards, referees that have the symptoms on there and remind them that they can remove somebody from the game under the laws of the game if they feel they're unfit to play. And then we take that forward into online modules and our most recent development is the animation video aimed at adolescents which we developed with Dr Mike Evans Laboratories in Canada who have a great reputation in public health messaging. Um, That's been available online for the last year nearly. Um, And that's now embedded in our school's rugby. So as part of our work with schools, any school now that's taking part in our Black competitions, um, they have to deliver education to all their teachers, all their players, as part of entering that competition. The online modules for coaches and referees um, are now mandatory across the community game for anybody doing any coaching or refereeing, qualification or CPD. So you can see how that that campaign has gradually built momentum over time. It's not a quick process, though. This is behaviour change. Um, And as Simon said, it's public health on a large scale. So, you know, know, we've we've started to evaluate it. And again, we've got some interesting findings from some work just recently done with UCL on evaluating our face-to-face education. Um, And we're looking probably about two years out, to do, again, a a repeat large study of the overall impact of the game, of of the campaign in the community game. Um, And it'll be interesting to see those findings, to see where the shift has taken place. Inevitably, there are other aspects of this. The the media interest in it has helped drive that messaging. There's no doubt about it, um, that having some media interest in this, although sometimes it can seem negative, does help us in driving that message across and start to shift those behaviours. Okay, Uh, absolutely
0: fascinating insight into, you know, the the public health um, element to it. And I know BGSM listeners will be familiar with the Heath Brothers behavioural change model of motivating the elephant, directing the rider, and then shaping the path, all of which you guys, you know, demonstrate to to an incredible standard. Um, So the aim, the overall aim is to remove as many concussed players from the pitch as soon as possible. Um, Can you tell us a bit more about what else the RFU is doing to try and ensure
1: this? Um, So... From a starting point in the mid-2000s where 57% of premiership players subsequently deemed to be concussed remained on the field and where the on-field assessment for suspected head injury in the Rugby World Cup in 2011 took 64 seconds, we've come a long way. Um, And really it was the introduction of the head injury assessment, formerly the PSCA process, that allowed a temporary substitution in the professional game that's led this Um, and the next big step was to integrate real-time video uh, made accessible to team doctors to support decision-making around the HIA and we rolled that out with World Rugby in the 2015 Rugby World Cup. And it was really interesting. The analysis of that system that was published in the British Journal of Sports Medicine earlier this year showed that 50% of our professional game concussions could be identified on video alone. So if you saw the immediate and permanent removal criteria, such as loss of consciousness, suspected loss of consciousness, tonic posturing, ataxia, often transient, fleeting signs with real-time video you can make correct decisions around recognise and remove. Um, So that was a huge success during the Rugby World Cup 2015 and what we've seen this season in the Premiership is the Premiership clubs adopt similar technology to provide team doctors with a broadcast footage and a wide view footage showing the players' response to the head injury event to help them manage the delivery of recognize and remove um, premiership medical teams have um, identified a pitch side video reviewer, a member of their medical team who watches the footage in real time and then captures clips to be shown to the team doctor to enable the team doctor to make the right decisions. okay, that sounds absolutely
0: brilliant um, and in terms of, sort of with the RFU moving forward um what what further sort of action or research do you think? Needed to try and improve it further. Um,
1: so I think we've we've worked very hard. Rugby's worked very hard. Uh, this is across all unions and with World Rugby uh, around making the HIA process work. Um, and we're still looking to refine the components of the off pitch triage tool. So the HIA one assessment is the assessment that the player undergoes to determine whether they can recover, a return, or whether they stay off. Um, and this season within the Premiership Championship, we're testing out the King Devic Eye test to see if a test of ocular motor function. So a test where you have to scan, name, and talk out numbers as fast as possible. An element that we don't currently assess in the HIA would help this process become more sensitive and specific. Um, So World Rugby have been very supportive. They've allowed us to extend the HIA from 10 minutes to 13 minutes, and we're running the King Devic test as a research assessment. So the team doctors are blinded to it, and they're not using what they find in their decision-making. We believe that at the end of a season, we'll be sufficiently powered in our two competitions to definitively comment on the sensitivity and specificity of the test, which is potentially a really exciting development because... You don't need a doctor to run your King Devic test. So if it's shown to be appropriately sensitive and specific, there's the ability to look to see if it could be used in the community again.
0: Okay, I think that's a great example of, sort of the innovation going on within rugby. I think you know World Rugby and, and yourselves deserve to be very much commended for that. Um, moving on to some of the research that you've published in the BGSN. Um, There was one quite notable one which gained a lot of traction on social media um, that showed a relationship between concussion and subsequent musculoskeletal injuries. Um, Would you mind elaborating? Is that okay?
3: Yeah, sure, no problem. Um, So this was a two-season study of 810 professional players all playing in the Premiership. And what we did was we compared the risk of injury of players who had reported a concussion um against those that did not report a concussion during the season so we found a 60% increase in all injury risks so not just msk but all injuries um in comparison in those players that were had a reported concussion in comparison to those players that did not report a concussion um i guess you might think or you you wonder with those findings whether the concussed group what their baseline risk was, so whether they were in fact more hazardous and there was some reason why or the way they played that made them more, more injury prone, if you like, at baseline. Um, so we looked actually at the concuss group only comparing their pre and post-injury risk um, and there was no difference, which would suggest um, that there's something around the injury that caused that increase. Um, and we also looked at the time to subsequent injury so not just the, the incidence and the risk, but actually what was the time to the next subsequent injury in the concussed group versus those that hadn't reported concussion. And those in the concuss group, the time to the next injury was half of those that didn't report concussion. Um, so what we did was we matched the, the concussion injuries and their next subsequent injury with um, 100 random injuries, so around the same number of a set of random injuries that weren't concussion. And you want to check that that's repeatable. So we actually repeated that with three different sets of random injuries and found similar
0: results in all three analyses. Okay, that's a fascinating sort of finding. I think it it, 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 it marries with, with, I think, some research that was done in Swedish football as well. Um, and what does this mean about the return to sport following concussion? And could could these findings influence clinical practice?
3: Yeah, so I think um, it's a really important point you make, Stefan, around that this isn't unique to rugby or doesn't appear to be unique to rugby. So we've seen this in football in college athletes in in the US as well, and in other sports, this increase in in subsequent injury risk. Um, And I guess the findings suggest that there's either something about the injury itself that means players have an increase in the risk of injury upon return to play, or that players aren't fully recovered from injury following completion of their GRTP. So we hope that the study contributes in this area and significantly contributes to the scientific knowledge um, and allows those with the Berlin Conference coming up at the end of the month to to kind of include it in their considerations around the content or whether the content and duration of the GRTP are suitable.
1: I mean, just coming in on that, um, there are some stark differences between your recovery from concussion and other injury in rugby. So you typically return from concussion within professional rugby in 12 days and that's compared to an average from all other injury of 29 days. And when you look at the GRTP, it very much focuses on rest. It doesn't typically at the moment have an active rehab component. And intuitively, when you talk to therapists working in the field, most of us believe that there's likely to be benefit from more active rehabilitation of the systems that may have been injured in your concussion And that's likely to positively influence subsequent injury risk. It'd be interesting to consider whether Berlin considers the need to review the content and duration of the graduated return to play, because these findings are coming through from a number of studies. Thanks very much for that great insight. That concludes part one of this podcast.
0: Thank you ever so much for joining us, and we hope you join us for part two.